From a young age, journalism was always on the radar for Tracy Spicer, exploring the stories of our time and uncovering truths. And this drive continues with her latest book called Man Made. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness of our world. Tracy Spicer is a multiple Walkley Award winning author, journalist and broadcaster who has anchored national programs for ABC TV and radio, Network 10 and Sky News. Tracy is one of the most sought after on stage and online keynote speakers and MCs within our region. And in 2019, she was named the New South Wales Premier's Woman of the Year. Struck by seven words said to her by her son, and Tracy will tell us what they are, Tracy has spent the last few years researching AI and in particular, exploring how the bias of the past is being built into the future. There are some real breathtaking revelations that Tracy shares in this conversation. We talk about Tracy's journalism career and her experience with long COVID. When it comes to AI, we also chat about the bias that is built in AI. Where does it actually come from? We talk about my solution, which is surely you can just program bias out of AI and how that is actually not not as possible or as clear cut as what I thought it would be. And Tracy also shares some really practical ways that all of us can seek to be mindful of the bias within AIs and explore both the benefits and the inherent downsides of this AI technology that is all around us. This is a thought-provoking, engaging and fascinating conversation with someone who is an explorer of truth. Please soak up the wisdom and the insight that is Tracy Spicer. Tracy, such a delight to be chatting with you on this podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Ali. I really appreciate it. I'd love to start with a little bit about your story. What was the pull towards a career in media and journalism? Was there a, you know, a particular kind of moment where you kind of had a fascination? There was. I proudly call myself a bogan from the outskirts of Brisbane. So as soon as I saw the wonderful current affairs host Yarn Event on television reporting from the studio of 60 Minutes or in war zones around the world, I thought I want to be her and I don't think I only wanted to be a journalist or a news and current affairs host. I secretly think deep down I wanted to be a slight dark-haired woman of Eastern European ancestry because she seemed so much more stylish and sophisticated and fabulous than I was in my tiny little life on the outskirts of Brisbane. But seriously, I've been thinking about this lately. My dear dad always watched the six o'clock news back in the day and made us watch it as well, my sister and I. And he's in his early 80s now, still fascinated with what's happening in the world, still very switched on and engaged. So I was given the gift of a love for news and what's happening and understanding the world from a very young age. Aside from the stylish kind of allure, what was it that was in that gift? What do you think captivated your, whether it's the questioning style, the stories that were uncovered, what was it that maybe your dad kind of shared and captured within that gift? Part of it was an interest in social justice and power imbalances in society. Who has power, who uses it well, who misuses it, who doesn't have power, and how we can have an influence as a society by coming together to create change. This was an era where Joe Bjocki Peterson was Premier in Queensland, 
And there are a lot of stories about corruption within the government, the gerrymander system, uh, a huge large-scale political abuse of power. So that lit a fire in my belly to tell stories that are not only interesting and make me understand the world, but also might change what people do to push back against power structures and change things for the rest of society. Was there ever any other career options on the table? Oh, the, the other thing I wanted to be was a lawyer because, again, lots of asking questions, lots, lots of debating, lots of mm. trying to change society in different ways. Now our 17-year-old daughter wants to be a lawyer. And I said to her, that's probably right because she's got a similar kind of personality in that respect. Yeah. I'm still very fascinated by the law. I did a lot of court and legal reporting as a journalist and there's quite a crossover between those two professions. But ultimately I'm glad I became a journalist because, you know, a lot of people don't even know what they want to do when they're in their 20s, 30s and 40s. I was lucky that I knew from the age of 12 what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. How were those early years within your career? What captivated you or what challenged you as you started to step into the career? Because we have this picture, we have the yarn event kind of example, but sometimes things can be a bit different. Yes, my first couple of jobs were were lovely. There are some wonderful mentors who taught me the ropes after I went to university, predominantly men because I was one of the few women in newsrooms at that time. It was only when I went to television, I started in country television, that I was shocked by the level of sexism, misogyny and discrimination. I grew up in a household with a very strong, powerful mother who worked full-time and was very career-driven and a lovely, sensitive, kind, gentle father who also worked but who was more of the feminine energy in the house, I guess. So going into newsrooms where it was still very much the stereotypical 1950s way of a man is a man and this is how a woman should be was quite a shock. I was uh, told in my country television job that I'd never make it in the city like my hero yarn event because I had blonde hair and people think blondes are stupid, I was told. And it was quite a shock to someone who was brought up in a very egalitarian household. The way I describe it in retrospect, now having the language around it as a 56-year-old woman, is that the small percentage of women in the industry at the time were surrounded by a wallpaper of misogyny. And because it was there all the time, we became accustomed to it and thought that it was normal and that was the way it was always going to be. I'm delighted to look back on that time and say it's no longer as bad as that. Obviously, we still have our issues, but we've come an awfully long way. The wallpaper of misogyny, that's such an interesting way that trying to make sense of what seems to, feels abnormal, but might have seemed to be fairly normal for so many within that industry. I think that's a really fascinating description. Did you have a sense or a moment where you maybe felt like the career within journalism that you'd found your big break or the role that you wanted to step into? Yes, I definitely had my big break. I worked at a a few television stations in Melbourne and Victoria and then my big break came reading the news in Brisbane Monday to Friday because that was always considered the flagship program for the news. I co-hosted with a fellow called Glenn Taylor and it was lovely to be able to read the news in your hometown. You know, that was so nice. I lived with mum and dad again for a while, which was beautiful because we're a very close family. And it was interesting because 
I'll never forget that every night Glenn read the first story, the intro to the first story, and I read the second one, even though his background was in modelling and my background was in journalism. I went up to the boss one night and I said, just doesn't make sense having the bloke read the first story and the woman's up there like some kind of accoutrement, you know, just an afterthought. It tells our daughters and their daughters that they're second best. So why don't we just alternate? And the boss said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll alternate. And that taught me that it's always worth asking the question that certainly some things are deliberately inequitable, but other times people just haven't thought it through. And if you ask the question, honestly, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? So I read the news up there for two years and and absolutely loved it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, that, you know, what's the worst? It, there's so many kind of fears and barriers sometimes we can put into place. The worst is it'll be exactly the same or you find someone else to ask that question. <laughs> In terms of a you know career in journalism, you know you talked about that kind of upbringing and support, and really that gift of your father of kind of questioning the status quo, asking those questions. Sometimes there can be this kind of element of doubt or uncertainty, or where we might think about our own capabilities. How did you navigate some of that wrestle for yourself within your career? Oh, I'd love to hear how you deal with it, Ali, and how you advise people to deal with it because I'm rather fascinated by this whole area of confidence, what you feel that you can do, the negative voices in your head, the positive voices you have to put in your head to overcome them. For whatever reason, I was fortunate to always be very confident and I'm sure that's to do with the upbringing. Mum and Dad were very supportive of my sister and I. But the longer I was in the media, the more my confidence became eroded because it quickly became clear that women in the industry were more valued for their appearance rather than what was in their hearts and their heads. And it really makes you question fundamental things like your instinct and your intellect. I mean, I was ducks of my sub-senior year at school, so I knew objectively that I was smart. But then working in that environment for a while... I started asking fewer questions at press conferences. I didn't trust the angles of my stories because I thought maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. And it it really did erode my confidence and it took finally standing up for myself many years later for my confidence to build again and even to have written two books now to think actually, you know, maybe I do have a brain after all. I mean, have you struggled with the confidence thing, Ali, or what about people who who you talk to? What advice do you give them on that? Yeah, it is. It's an area that fascinates me. And I think what I was thinking as you're sharing is that kind of small erosion can be so much more subtle than kind of a stark moment where confidence kind of shatters. It's like that little chipping away and almost you get to a point of realising, oh, I'm not speaking out or I'm second guessing myself or kind of questioning I think, you know, that doubt is okay. It's the actions that we do with it or where it kind of might hold us back. So I think the goal is not necessarily the uber confidence or to remove doubt. You know, even if I think about it from a psychology point of view or from a journalism point of view, the option to really be able to question and see different perspectives and have that from a self-awareness point of view is a really valuable skill. But to be able to see where might that be stopping behaviour or actions is that's the moment to kind of then look at, well, what's the little thing that I can do? What's the 
you know, almost desensitization. What's the question that I can ask? What's the thing that I'm scared of? But it, it would put me in an experience of testing and trying. And I think with each of those, we get another bit of information and we get another bit of evidence to kind of step into it. But I think so often, I think partly why I, you know, appreciate your response is I think so often we assume that everyone else has got it together. Yeah. And that can be the divide. (laughs) That's exactly right. Whenever I get up to give a speech or to do some media and presentation training, which I do a bit of on the side, and I love it because you can teach people some tools to get past their own underconfidence issues or their own doubt issues in a professional capacity. I always tell the story first up of how my very first appearance on Metropolitan Television in Melbourne in my early 20s, I fainted not once but twice (laughs) through having a panic attack and an anxiety (laughs) attack because you're right, people do look at someone like me or people who've done a lot of television and speaking and they think, oh, gosh, they must have been very confident from a young age and they've got it all together Mm. and everything seems perfect. And, of course, it's never that. You've got to go through a, a lot of different journeys and teaching yourself and learning different strategies in order to be able to keep it together. In the case of my fainting, I had to learn a lot about the fight, flight or freeze mechanism, how to manage my anxiety. And now Mm. I do these days through a lot of breathing and mantras and power poses and study into the scientific side of the different parts of your nervous system and whatnot. So I can manage it now, but it's only because I went through that and had to learn how to put the armour on to be able to get up and do what I do. To have the tools to tap into. What was that experience like in the moment? Do you remember having a sense of what was happening or was it oh, was yeah. that kind of hard to experience? It was terrible. I'd always been a fainter. So I knew what was going on. I started sweating. My heart was beating fast. My fingers were tingling. My extremities went cold. I knew exactly what was happening. My mum was a fainter as well. So We knew how to manage it and usually you just sit down or lie down, you know, get yourself lower. And I thought, I can't sit down or lie down. I'm on television. That's ridiculous. (laughs) So I look straight down the barrel. Put the camera on the roof and we'll be fine. (laughs) Totally. I could do the rest of that. I was doing the weather at that point in time. The rest of the weather lying on the ground looking up. Be hilarious. (laughs) And my friends laugh about it to this day because I said, I look straight down the barrel of the camera and said, excuse me, I have to go now. Goodbye. And they were like, what, did you have an urgent dentist appointment at 6.15 at night? That is just insanity. So I passed out in the corner and then like an idiot, overconfident, went back the next night, did it again, fainted again. So that's why I thought I've got to do, I've got to do something because otherwise I'll only have a career horizontal. I can't have one vertical. <laughs> I do love the politeness of it though, the, the excuse me. <laughs> I'm just having a panic attack. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, I only realised it was a panic attack after, actually. Like, I I knew I was fainting, Mm. but I thought, oh, well, I'd had a cold recently. I thought, maybe I haven't eaten enough. Maybe I haven't had enough water. Maybe I'm coming down with something. Because remember back at that time, that would have been about 30 years ago, there wasn't a lot of talk around about panic attacks or anxiety attacks. So isn't it wonderful to live in a time now where we can talk about this and we have a language around it? Yeah, and there's a real openness to share. And those tips and tools that you spoke about, even if individuals aren't experienced fainting, are useful for all of us, right? So there's that commonality that, yeah, is what kind of unites us. 
I'd love to talk about your latest book, your second book, Man Made. And it's such a fascinating study and research into technology and into AI and a conversation that I believe we really need to have. You had an epiphany about our potential relationship with technology after hearing six words from your son. What were they? The words were, Mum, I want a robot slave. (laughs) And it was early one morning. I was making his breakfast. I said, what are you talking about, darling? He said, oh, I've just been watching South Park. We are obviously terrible parents. So we could get a sleep in. We'd tell the kids, just go upstairs and watch something on television. I want to have a sleep in. And, of course, he'd chosen South Park. Really inappropriate at the age of 11. He was watching Cartman, a very naughty boy, ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial overlord. As a lifelong feminist and journalist, I did have an epiphany that this whole idea of women and girls being the ones in the home to serve the tea and scones and to do the jobs that no one else wants to do and to organise everybody were being embedded in these technologies that our children are listening to and the next generation will be exposed to. And that started, gosh, a seven-year-long journey where I went right down the rabbit hole and discovered automated soap dispensers that only work for white hands, not black hands, and ventilators in hospitals that are being given to 30-year-olds but not anyone over the age of 50 because we're seen as less productive to society. So all the isms, all the types of biases are being built into this technology which could be sending us backwards. Obviously AI has been a massive part of the conversation here in 2023 but as you said you started your research over seven years ago I did actually, just out of curiosity, type into ChatGBT what questions I should ask you. None of them were (laughs) any good (laughs) at all. So just so you know, these are all driven by me, (laughs) these questions. I love that you Uh, had a play with it though. (laughs) It's fascinating to play with. Totally had a play with it. Where did you, and you've shared obviously some of those kind of key pieces, but one of the areas that you uncovered was this myth about the founding fathers of AI. Talk to me a bit about what you uncovered or discovered. Well, the whole idea of there being an artificial intelligence has been around since the time of Adam, you know, they've always been, even in Greek mythology, these ideas about artificial creatures being created that we now call robots. But as a society, we hang the birth of artificial intelligence on a group of 10 men who had a conference at a place called Dartmouth in the 1950s. And because they came up with the term artificial intelligence, they are credited with creating the whole field. One of the main aims of my book was to reveal the hidden histories of the many women and people in marginalised communities who worked to build the world we have today and who haven't been properly remembered. And that goes all the way back to Australia's First Nations women, who new scholarship suggests were the world's first computer coders. How does that work? Well, coding is a, a binary code of zeros and ones. So is weaving, and they were the first people to weave in the world. That's a binary code of the warp going over and under the weft, a bit like knitting with the knit one pearl too. Then you fast forward to the world's first computer programmer who was Ada Lovelace, daughter of Lord Byron, fun fact. And then the 1950s where there were so many women, more women than men working in computing, yet when money started coming in the industry, 
in the subsequent decades, the women were forced out or put into much lower paid rudimentary kind of roles. So I really wanted to, in the first couple of chapters, smash this myth of the founding fathers because they're getting credit where it's really not due. And if we didn't venerate them the way we did, maybe there'd be more women in computing and technology to this day because they'd see more role models in the past. It's so important to keep sharing and hearing some of these stories that definitely shine a light onto. We've shared a couple, but what were some of the kind of overt biases that you encountered through your research or heard about or discovered that maybe, yeah, surprised you? A lot of the really well-known ones that are becoming more well-known now and will impact people who are listening to this podcast is when you apply for a job or a promotion. Increasingly, that decision is made by an algorithm, not a human, and there's no human oversight. The problem is that the software takes data from the past to make its decisions. Inevitably, if it's looking to the past, there were more men in the workforce. There were more people under the age of 50, not over the age of 50. There were fewer people in the past in the workforce with disabilities. There were fewer people of colour in higher paid roles. So the computer makes the decision that any CVs of these people should be thrown out and not get to the next level. Even when programmers explicitly go in and change the algorithm to say, please don't throw out those CVs, through something called machine learning, the machine, so clever, teaches itself to find those cues. For example, the machine will look at a CV of someone who has played, say, college basketball in the US and assume that's a person of colour because more people of colour historically have played that game rather than white people and will throw out those CVs. It will look at a CV of someone who has said, oh, yes, I played netball when I went to school, realise that's a woman and throw out the CV. The former Human Rights Commissioner in Australia, Ed Santo, did a three-year report on this and he describes it, particularly in banking and finance, as like reawakening zombies because banks are now making decisions on whether you get a home loan based on the historical patterns of the past, the level at which you get a credit card limit. That is all being affected and you are being put into a box (laughs) related to your identity and then, I suppose punished or you're given fewer advantages because of that, because of what's happened in the past. A few more dangerous examples, that soap dispenser that only worked for white hands, that technology is being used in self-driving cars. It's a light sensor technology powered by artificial intelligence. So if that car comes up to a pedestrian crossing and there's a white person crossing the road, the car will stop. If there's anybody else, the car will run them over because it does not detect them. So there are things that annoy us in day-to-day life and there are matters of life and death and it follows the whole spectrum. Extraordinary. In terms of my natural thinking is to its code, we can rewrite the code, but what you're saying is even if we rewrite the code, that still doesn't solve the problem. Yes, and there's two things I'd like to cover by addressing that question. One is a wonderful quote from Ivana Bartoletti, one of the experts I interviewed around the world. She's a global expert in this space and she said, an algorithm is an opinion written in code. 
And often, because programmers are predominantly young white men in Silicon Valley, let's face it, they put their own unconscious biases into the algorithm and sometimes their own deliberate biases as well. Even if you do go in and try to change it, machine learning takes the biases from the data set in the past and exaggerates and exacerbates them. And a great example of that is something Microsoft put on Twitter in 2016 called Tay. Tay was supposed to be a fun 19-year-old female chatbot. Hello world, I'm here. You know, really good fun stuff. Tay absorbed all of the data on Twitter within 48 hours and became an anti-feminist neo-Nazi because the chatbot was surrounded by all of this bias and absorbed it and then exacerbated it and thought, I'm doing a good job. I'm taking all this in. This is the path that I'm supposed to be on. And this is happening every day. Machine learning's being used in the medical sector enormously and deepening those already existing biases from traditionally male doctors. It's a huge problem. But at the end of my book, I do have solutions and I have a chapter on utopia because AI can do wonderful things as well. And I I don't want you to think the end is nigh because we'd all just give up, wouldn't we? Well, yeah, go and live in the wilderness somewhere. But uh, I and that's what's coming to mind as I I hear you. I was at a conference yesterday, and one of the things, one of the statistics that one of the speakers put up was that eighty-two percent of us, in some circumstances, would prefer to be speaking with a robot as opposed to a human. And there wasn't a sense of why, but my interpretation might be that at least I'm getting information. I'm getting it now you know it's I want to say accurate but I'm using inverted commas from your research did that align in terms of is there a sense where interacting whether it's a chatbot or getting information from a machine is preferred oh yes in fact there's a very robust statistic out there that more of us will be speaking to chatbots than to humans by 2025 which is really really soon There's a whole field in human companionship and robotics. Some of it's very positive, some of it's frightening. It comes from the field of sex robots, which they're predominantly built in the female form. They're very, very real and people are building relationships with them because the technology is so sophisticated, they can seem almost sentient. Now, that is hugely problematic, particularly when you've got sex robots where there's a button that you can press to override consent. And what does that mean for the way people view women in society and sex and respectful relationships? Mm. That's a whole other area. But with regards to human companionship during the pandemic, there were robots deployed, they use that term deployed, interestingly, in New York to elderly people with dementia and Alzheimer's to give them company, to ask them questions, to have conversations with them, to keep them engaged when they weren't having human contact, when it wasn't safe because of COVID-19. I know a group in Australia who wants to get those dementia robots brought out here because caring for someone with those diagnoses is incredibly difficult. Equally, I personally think it's very sad to be living in a society where we're not having a conversation more robustly about paying care workers more or paying family members and friends to care for loved ones. The caring economy is where I'd like the conversation to go, not getting robots in to do this. 
they're using robots in childcare in Japan. And there's a whole bunch of privacy issues around that because they're filming videos and taking photos and finding out a unique personal fingerprint of that person that will be carried with them for the rest of their lives. So where is one's privacy anymore? It really doesn't exist. People do build really close relationships with these robots. So the ones that are used in nursing homes and aged care facilities, a lot of them at this stage are in the form of animals. There's a little seal called Paro that was uh, on a trial in the UK as a companion for elderly people. And they got so attached to it when the trial ended, they got incredibly distressed that the seal was being taken away from them, even though it was in the shape of an animal that anthropomorphized it and thought it was their friend. So this is a growth area we'll see in the next, even the next couple of years. So you're a parent, I'm a parent. As parents, how do we talk to or navigate this world, multiple AIs, and children are already, already interacting with them as we are? What would be your suggestions or opinions or key things for us to keep in mind as we have this conversation with our kids? Oh, it all starts with education in in layperson's terms and showing them, first of all, where AI is embedded in the household. And you can do that from when they're very young. For example, a lot of people have those iRobot vacuum cleaners. You can say to your kids, look, there's artificial intelligence in that. If you go into the city and use those smart elevators, you know, say there's artificial intelligence in that, say to them every time that, you know, you send an email or you do the online shopping and they offer you a suggested substitution, that's artificial intelligence. With this next generation, though, because of what's happened, as you rightly said in the intro in the past six months, they will be all over it with ChatGPT and image generation apps like MidJourney. They are so intuitive, Mm. they're free, incredibly easy to use, and the kids are on top of them already. The conversation we need to have is, yes, this is fun, this takes away some of your work and labour, but A, you don't want to outsource your thinking, you need to keep critical thinking. And B, think about the long-term implications. This algorithm is putting people out of a job. You know, where where are the jobs going to be for you, young person, in the future if we keep using this technology? And also pointing out the biases. Storytelling is the best way to change hearts and minds. So we say to our kids things like, tell ChatGPT to write a story about an engineer and a childcare worker. And in 100% of cases, the engineer will be male and the childcare worker will be female. It really does. I've spoken at a few high schools and particularly the girls, they are horrified by this because they feel that we've come an awfully long way and the world is their oyster and there are no barriers for them anymore. And that's wonderful. You need to remain confident, but you also need to be aware of the biases that are right in front of you every day. So you were diving into this research for six or seven years. Talk to me about your experience of writing this book as you started to hear some of the stories and then uncover some of the research. Was it a roller coaster? Did you <laughs> did you want to <laughs> continue? Like what, what was your emotional, I guess, experience of writing this book? Oddly enough, I became obsessed with it because... I'm, you know, an older woman now. I want to keep up with technology. It was a world I'd had no access to and I felt really, you know, delighted and privileged to be able to interview experts around the world and pick their brains and understand it in a really simple way. It was a fun intellectual exercise to take something complex and try to make it simple through anecdote and metaphor and visualisation, all those tools that journalists use. Mm. 
I was interviewing a wonderful woman called Dr Joan Bajorek who runs an organisation called Women in Voice and she's right on the cutting edge of voice recognition technology which is being used to decide whether people can emigrate from one country to another and it doesn't recognise the voices of people for whom English is a second language properly. It's appalling. She said to me, I said at the end of the interview, a question I asked all of my interviewees, so is it going to be a dystopia? or a utopia. And everyone else had said to me, look, you know, I'm worried about it, but ultimately humanity will win. And there was this long pause. And then she said, I'm sorry, I just can't say it's going to be a utopia. It will be a dystopia. And that frightened me when someone who is an expert in this space says, I can't see any way back yet. However, a lot of other people could see a way back. But I had something really interesting happen during the writing of the last quarter of the book. I was diagnosed with long COVID and spent most of last year either in bed or a wheelchair. That actually helped the writing process because living with a dynamic disability, you have a different insight into artificial intelligence for people with disabilities, smart home technology, an app to turn the lights on and off, which makes life so much easier So it really opened the door for me to understand inclusive design and the importance of having people who are affected involved in the design of innovations from the start. It is such a complex issue and you've, you know, that's obviously a lived experience of seeing what can be the gains and the potential of utilising this technology. I've heard you say in other interviews that boycotting, stepping away, not using some of the AI technologies is not the answer. Why is that? There's a place for boycotting certain companies that have very bad practices. For example, catching a Sheba, female-run technology company, instead of an Uber, which has a terrible background. I've got a whole chapter on Uber, you know, the former CEO, Travis, calling it Booba. Just shocking, shocking, sending his executives to strip clubs. Awful. The problem with boycotting programs that use artificial intelligence, and especially machine learning, is that we need to be now engaged in machine teaching. We need to teach the robots to be better, to reduce the bias, to reduce the discrimination, and to have our likes and dislikes, personalities, interests, and I suppose demographics represented in the innovations of the future. There's already a huge digital divide with people in developing countries much less likely to have a smartphone and therefore their interests, their languages, their culture are not taken into account in the picture of the future that's been created by big tech. So we must actively forge forward and use ChatGPT and MidJourney and all of these problematic innovations, a lot of which are still in beta testing phase, to teach them to be better. I said that during a speech actually with a whole bunch of wonderful women working in community services recently and one of them came up to me afterwards and do you know what, she's right. She said, I hear what you're saying practically but she said, guess what, once again it's women's unpaid labour and she's right. The blokes make these devices, Mm. put them out there imperfectly. We're expected to spend our spare time like when you... (laughs) When you have to say, you know, what squares is the bicycle in, (laughs) you know, to teach the robots, we have to fix it for free and then who's making the money? Not us. (laughs) That reinforces that uh, pay gap and the disparity between rich and poor because we are seeing that widen with artificial intelligence. Ali, as for the answer, I don't know. I've just got a lot of thoughts and questions right now. (laughs) 
Yes, yeah. And it's a conversation that is, because of the complexity, so important to continue to have. You mentioned before, and obviously not putting more load on those that might be listening, but short of us living in the wilderness and (laughs) (laughs) removing ourselves from technology, which I'm not sure is even possible at this point, what can individuals do as part and parcel of their day? Overarching thoughts centre around critical thinking that whatever we're using, have a look at it, think about the biases and discrimination, try to teach it to be a little bit better. Once you read the book or start hearing about this topic, the scales fall from your eyes and you will see it everywhere. I'm telling you, you'll see it everywhere. Talk to your friends, talk to your workmates, ask your boss, where do we use AI in this company? Do we have audits for bias? Because it's similar to the conversation about gender pay audits many decades ago. There are companies who are auditing these algorithms for bias, but not a lot of it's happening. It's now been mandated actually in New York. That's the first jurisdiction to do that, which is wonderful. There's also an Artificial Intelligence Act that's going through the process in the European Union. The member states are pushing back because they're saying, no, we don't want to lose our competitive advantage against China and the US. But we forget that as citizens, we have power. We can contact our local member and say, is bias in artificial intelligence on your agenda and what are you going to do about it? Ed Santo, the former human rights commissioner, says Australia could play a role as being a regulatory sandbox where innovations are tested for bias and for ethics and dangers, safety, before being unleashed on an unsuspecting public. So we've got to put it on the agenda of our leaders. But the most important thing is to have the conversation and educate yourself about it, read about it, think about it, talk to your friends. That's how change is created. Is this the new frontier for feminism? The conversations, well, not just feminism, let's talk about marginalised voices. I would contend that it is for a couple of reasons. One, it's a bit of a play on words because big tech is the Wild West. There's very little regulation or legislation and they are running rampant. But it is a new frontier in this conversation because of one thing that Dr Joy Bullamweeny said. She's the head of the Algorithmic Justice League, best name for an organisation ever. She did a documentary on Netflix called Coded Bias. It was outstanding. She sat on Joe Biden's roundtable about AI a couple of weeks ago. She said that if we do nothing we risk losing the gains of the civil rights movement and the women's movement under the false assumption of machine neutrality. This is why I call it a frontier conversation because we're right at the edge. If we don't do something now, we will go backwards. Every generation seems to take social justice further historically in the past couple of hundred years. But this is the one thing that could send us backwards very, very quickly. And even the experts are saying that. This is why it's a conversation we have to have now. And also, I guess it's frontier in that it affects every aspect of our lives. It's not just one conversation around feminism or one conversation around racism. It's everything from cradle to grave, from the moment you get up in the morning, from the time you go to bed at night, everything that you do in your life, you cannot escape it. It's everywhere. It's a huge cultural shift. It's the fourth industrial revolution. And because we're right in the middle of it, we can't really see it clearly yet. It's a massive disruptor in so many different areas and, yeah, that chance to continue to dive in to the conversations to check, yeah, and ask those questions 
is really a call to action for all of us. For yourself, obviously, there was seven years of (laughs) research, the writing, and then obviously putting a book out and the marketing of it is the next phase and the next wave. Are there other projects, either current or future projects that you have on your radar? I mainly want to sleep and rest and get over long COVID 100% and focus on my health (laughs) the next couple of, of years. I'd like to do a lot of speaking about this topic because obviously I'm very passionate about it. I probably will write another book if my health is okay in another five years on a different topic, but it will be broadly around social justice, feminism, inequity. I like looking at those big picture societal issues, what's coming up next and what we can do about it as a community because ultimately while it is scary, it is empowering to think what can we do to work towards a solution. I think about um, your area as well with psychology. I don't know whether you read this, but in the States, there was an explosion of chatbots being used instead of psychologists. And they ended up giving the worst advice to vulnerable people. And the organisations hired back the psychologists and got rid of the chatbots. So ultimately, I'm optimistic (laughs) that we're in a, like you say, a really disrupted phase at the moment. And we think it's all fun and we're playing with all the toys and the robots. Mm. But ultimately, we'll push back and say, hang on, it's great that we've designed this beautiful car, but we need seatbelts for it before we can all use it safely. And, you know, it is such a, I think, reminder around the value that we can bring and to make sure we're stepping into that. Even the uh, story about psychologists, you know, if the benchmark is I have to be better than a robot, (laughs) uh, that I need to bring my humanity to the work that I do, it's not a bad benchmark (laughs) when the robots are getting smarter and quicker and, you know, in a whole range of different areas. It's an encouragement to step up as humans. Yes, and to remember what it is that makes us uniquely human, particularly in the creative aspects of all of our jobs. Robots can do some things, some of the very low-level, repetitive, maths-based, predictable work, but it still takes a human to be able to connect with another human on that heart-to-heart level, to express something creatively that means something to another human being. And as humans, we still crave, look at what happened during the lockdowns, we desperately craved human contact outside of our households. So ultimately, if we can learn to master this technology rather than allowing it to master us, we'll come out ahead. You have shared not only in this conversation but publicly about your experience with long COVID. What is long COVID? If there are anyone who is listening going, does that just mean you feel a little bit more tired? Can you explain a little bit about, you know, what your experience has been and continues to be? Sure. It's a constellation of very different symptoms that affects probably one in 10 people who get COVID. It can last anywhere from a couple of months to many years. I know some people who've had it for three years now, which is horrific. It's very similar to ME-CFS, which used to be called chronic fatigue syndrome. The exhaustion is not like normal tiredness. It's like you're dragging your body around and your body is a corpse that does not want to move. There is something inside your body that is Mm. fighting it from moving and it's not just in your head, it's physiological. I've worn a smartwatch for the last year and I can see that my body is fighting 
trying to stand up and get out of bed more than running 5Ks. It's something to do. I mean, they're trying to work out the mechanism now. It's around inflammation in the body. It's something that goes wrong with the mitochondria. There's a whole bunch of theories out there. I genuinely don't know what causes it. What I do know, though, is that it's classically post-viral illness, which has been around for centuries. After the Spanish flu, about 10% of the population simply did not recover for a long, long, long time, and something remained that damaged all of their organs. As well as the tiredness, there's, when I say tiredness, chronic fatigue, there's a dysautonomia that impacts a lot of us. I have Mm. that. When I stand up, I feel like I'm going to faint. My body's not retaining the water and the salt that it's supposed to. My autonomic nervous system has been damaged. So I'm on medication for that. Something else called mast cell activation syndrome, which means if you get too run down or if you do too much, for example, if you chop too many vegetables for dinner that night, it can be something as simple as that, then all of a sudden you feel like you've got the flu. It's all of these histamine rhinitis sort of symptoms. It's a very unusual illness. Other people get small fibre neuropathy. I only had a small amount of that where I felt like my foot was being electrocuted at three o'clock one morning. Some people have more lung impacts than I did. I had more of the autonomic nervous system damage, but it's real, it's physiological. There are some strategies you can use to manage it, but it's immensely debilitating. And my heart goes out to the young people who've got it, because that would be terrible being in the prime of your life and not being able to drag yourself out of bed. Yeah, that whole sense of forming the identity of who you are at those stages as well as kind of feeling those experiences would be incredibly hard. So where you say you're going to be looking towards sleep and rest and focusing on your health, that's a, a good goal to have. We need you to have it to then fight and <laughs> and write the next pieces and invite us into the next conversations. Tracy, I want to finish up this conversation with my final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Whether it's a utopia or dystopia, (laughs) how do you define a standout life? To me, a standout life is being true to yourself. It doesn't matter whether you're true by being high profile or low profile or speaking loudly or speaking quietly or having an influence in your circle or having a wider influence. If you're passionate about something, if it sets light to a fire in your belly, if it burns in your heart, then follow that path. doesn't matter if you're going to make a lot of money out of it or not. I know so many people have taken different paths for different reasons. And the one thing I've learned is you have your greatest success in whatever way you define success within yourself by being true to yourself and following your interests and your passions. You know, I had I had a coffee with a friend yesterday and I was remembering about when I first started pitching this book several years ago and every publisher rejected it. They said, <laughs> in one of the meetings, someone said, what's AI? I don't know what that is. And it was just this one publisher on the last day that it could have been finally accepted by somebody who got the idea and who ran with it big time and said, we need this for the next generation that got this over the line. So it's that whole finding what your passion is, following it through, being tenacious, not listening to the naysayers and going for it. And maybe, just maybe, you'll bring it out, the book out, (laughs) say yes to the book that's needed at exactly the right time. (laughs) I know, who would have thought? Crazy, crazy times. (laughs) 
Crazy. Tracy, thank you so much for this conversation, for sharing your research and for sharing your insights and obviously for matching in pink. I think we've aligned very well today. Thank you. Oh, Ali, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this conversation then let's keep the conversation going the main place that i hang out is on instagram at ali hill a-l-i-h-i-l-l one of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review standout life podcast on whatever platform you are listening to you can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out and if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.